Hey everybody, welcome back to this Ocean Life podcast. Thanks for being here. I'm your host, Josh Peterson. Today is episode number 91. I speak with Andy Shell and Mia Carlson, owners and operators of 59 North, an offshore sailing adventure company operating in the Atlantic Ocean. Now today, Andy and Mia tell their story of founding the company based on their love for sailing, the challenges they faced building a business of taking guests or crew with different levels of sailing experience out to sea for extended periods of time and telling their own stories of respective backgrounds in the ocean. Andy and Mia share stories from the various routes they take on their trips from transatlantic crossings to northern passages past Norway up into the ice. We hear the gear required, how they structure their crew during a voyage, and the special times they share with their crew at sea, helping others learn the love of sailing and the open ocean. And Andy and Mia touch on the special connection that we all share with the ocean and relate specific stories of their own spiritual interactions with animals at sea. It's a lot of neat stuff about open ocean sailing and really introducing and helping others learn uh, the love of the ocean and sailing. Hope everybody is enjoying the last throes of summer here in the Northern Hemisphere. <laughs> and as always, reducing our use of plastics, picking up some trash, and just doing some good stuff for the ocean. Thanks again for being here. Now, let's get into the ocean life of Andy Shell and Mia Carlson. So, a little back home on the farm in Sweden. I mean, uh, how's that feel after, I guess, like a consistent, steady stream of time on the water for you guys? It's great. You know, the, the, the farm for us, it's, it's been in Mia's family for like 100 years. So that's really cool to have that history uh, with it. And it, it's just a nice place to sort of unwind. We were on the boat this time for since the end of December. So like a solid Whoa. seven months. Yeah. So it's, you know, I, I couldn't do, I couldn't do, I don't think either of us could do full time one or the other. Like, I think I'd go crazy if I was full time on the farm. Yeah. But I'd also go crazy if I was full time on the boat. So it's, you know, it's all about the balance for us. And it's been a overly busy year this year because we got a second boat. But, um, you know, it is, it is really nice. We, I already, you know, I've been home a month. I already feel recharged. I've got another month to go. So it's a great place to come back to to recharge and kind of just hang out. And we were just showing some people around the house just 20 minutes ago. And this is a place where, like, we're pretty much isolated which is a good thing for our lifestyle. But if we had to yeah. like commute into Stockholm or something, that'd be a huge pain in the butt. But given that we're not really, we don't have to be anywhere when we're home, we're working on the computer and remotely, it's a really yeah. nice place to hang out. So it's, a, yeah, uh, that's, uh, that's killer. It's nice to have that kind of getaway. So Mia, is this like the place where you grew up? And second question, I guess, is it like kind of near the water? So it was like this kind of family retreat and entry point into the ocean for you? Actually not. It, yeah, it, it is in my family and uh, I grew up around this area. My parents live just a few kilometers away, but ironically, it's uh, farmland around. It's no water. The closest water is like 20 minutes away. So we, we can't go for our morning swims as we usually like to do on the boat. But yeah. on the other hand, it's kind of nice because it really makes you want the water when you've been here for a while. Yeah, yeah, hundred yeah. percent. Nice. All right. So as you guys are mentioning, you're you're chilling, you're some downtime on the farm, you know, getting off the water. Now, being on the water for you guys is you have this, and I've been spending a lot of time looking at it, and it's just awesome. I mean, first the content you guys put out, and and the way you keep people engaged with what you're doing with Fifty Nine North Sailing, which we'll dive into. I mean, you have a podcast, you have a blog. You have just so many pictures and passages. I mean, I just got lost in it last night. I spent like almost two hours. It's, it's killer. But give us like a summary. I mean, high level it. Just first, what is 59 North? What are you two doing? And then we'll kind of work backwards into how it all got started. Our overarching philosophy is sharing the wisdom of the high seas with those wise enough to seek it out. And I get very philosophical about this stuff. And obviously, our business model is we want to get people to come sailing with us. That's how we make a living on one of our two boats. But beyond that, we're trying to inspire people to get out there and do things on their own. I mean, the, the gist of my podcast, like the overarching theme of the podcast that I do is trying to figure out, you know, a lot of people have dreams, but why, what makes the ones that follow through on those dreams, what makes them different from the other people that don't? Yeah. And that's what I'm trying to inspire through, through my podcast, through Instagrams, through the blog, you know, everything else. And the point I made before we lost connection there was that it's, it would be way too much work if it was just a job. And it is truly our mm. passion. Like I do this because I love it and want to inspire other people. And 
it's turned into a business and that's, you know, that was on purpose, but, um, it, it is, it is really, really, we're truly following. I feel like what I was meant to be doing. Yeah. That's really awesome, man. I mean, because and it, it's a cool theme that I've had on in various capacities, different people on the podcast doing different things, trying to pursue their passion. And some like you guys have found it, others are on their way. But what's so rad is while you're able to, you, it's like a three for one, I'd, I'd kind of say for you guys. One is you have a thriving business and that's really great. We need to make money to live. That's just how it is. Two, you're doing something that personally fulfills you by being on the water because there's that aspect. But then three is you're also inspiring others. You know, I mean, I think that's just awesome how you've been able to to nail that. And I mean, it, while it's a job, it's also like you probably get up in, in the morning and not even look at it as a job. I mean, it, you just love doing it. No, it's not. And I, it, it doesn't feel like a job. And yeah, I'm inherently kind of, I, I think of my, I'm a pretty lazy guy and I have a hard time working hard for something I don't believe in. But at the same time, I have a very easy time putting in the work that's required to do what I'm truly passionate about. And it, like I said, it is the sailing, especially when we're on the boat, it's full on 24 seven. I mean, it's, it's even a short in four or five months is just, it takes yeah. it out of you and it's a lot of pressure and there's a lot of responsibility and all the other stuff. And I love it. I really, truly love it. But you couldn't, you couldn't do it if it was just a job, it would be just overwhelming. That, that's way cool. So now talk, if you would, about the, the setup today. You started with one boat, you have two, and you're operating on either side of the Atlantic. So give us that kind of summary of, of describe the boats because they're different boats kind of serving the same purpose and then the different areas they're operating in today. Yeah, so we have a Swan 48. That's a, well, both boats are Swans. One's a 48, one's a 59. They're both, bo both built in Finland. And we started the business with the 48 back in 2015. And the Atlantic Ocean has become sort of our, that's the North Atlantic specifically is where we're most comfortable. So it just depends. Both boats happen to be on the Chesapeake Bay right now. Annapolis, Maryland has, is where I grew up sailing out of there. So that's kind of our de facto home port. And the season ended for both boats there this year. And um, next year, they're both going to go across the Atlantic to Europe, but via different routes. We'll take me and I will take the big boat north to Newfoundland and then across to Ireland, and that'll be retracing a route that we originally sailed on on our first Atlantic crossing back in 2011 when it was just Mia and I and a friend on our first boat before we had a business. So we're kind of retracing that route, and then um, Eastbjorn, the the 48, is going to go with her new skipper and mate via Bermuda, the Azores, and then on up to Scotland and Norway. And her skipper is Norwegian now, so he's going to be sailing her to his home port in Bergen on the west coast of Norway. So it'll just as we go forward. It's at the moment the Atlantic. I don't mean to sound cocky about this, but we've gotten pretty com <laughs> we've gotten comfortable in the Atlantic. It's it's yeah. We logistically, we know where the good harbors are. We know how to fly in and out when we leave the boat between seasons. It's become a lot easier logistically to plan seasons in the Atlantic. I know the weather, I'm really comfortable with the weather patterns and that kind of stuff. Um, so that's where the next two or three years are going to take place, basically from the Caribbean all the way up to the Arctic in Spitsbergen, where we were last year. But that feels like our backyard almost and yeah. is where I'm most comfortable. But going forward, I mean, we've got. The, the earth is 70% ocean and it's all open and we yeah. all we want to do it all. I mean, me and I met in New Zealand and it's been a dream of ours to sail back there. We haven't been back since. Yeah. So it's, it's all on the table, which is uh, exciting and scary at the same time. Heck yeah. I mean, I was thinking about this too, from the, the perspective of it's one thing for you two to sail together. It's a totally different thing to add people who are basically paying clients who how, with I'm guessing a different a wide range of experience on the water experience sailing comfortability in heavy conditions and everything and so that the familiarity that you guys have found in these these routes where you know the good anchorages you know where to run from weather you know the weather patterns there's a bit a bit more predictability though nothing's predictable about the ocean but the idea or the the idea of you taking clients out along these routes and that familiarity has got to be key so talk about that I mean the different spec or the spectrum of clients that you take out some super seasoned and salty i'm guessing and others maybe not i mean what's that like yeah first of all i just it's just a small thing but i tend i like to call them crew instead of clients because it. clients it just feels too businessy to me like what yep. i feel like what we do yes i make a living doing it but it's not it's yeah it's it's hardly a, a business in that sense and and i yeah. call them crew specifically because they're not 
they're not on board the boat as passive, you know, passengers. Mm-hmm. They are the whole reason they come with us is because they get to actively participate in the sailing of the boat. And ah, okay. I see myself, you know, I joke that I've got the softest hands of the crew because I don't do anything. And <laughs> the best trips are when I take a back seat and and act more as a as a as a conductor than anything else and and everybody else being hands-on and I'm making sure that they're doing things right and not hurting themselves, not breaking the boat, number one. But, um, you know, that's what people are there for. They want to get the experience. And I, ironically, we, we sit down and chat before each passage and ask people what their individual goals are for each trip. And almost to a person, they say they want to experience heavy weather offshore in a quote-unquote controlled environment, me mm-hmm. and I being the control. And yep. I always laugh and be like, trust me, like it's it, you're, it's, you can't get off. Once it starts, it, you have to deal with it. That's it. You can't say, okay, I've experienced it. Turn it off now. It doesn't work that way. Right. Um, but that's, you know, that's the thing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass the mic over to Mia and kind of let her talk about the diversity because we have a awesome. very diverse crew that sails with us, both ages and experience and everything. So, Mia, you want to take that one? Awesome. Yeah, it's really neat. We had, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, on the, on the trip this year, we had uh, both the youngest and the oldest person on the same trip. And the youngest one was a girl who was 21, just finished college. And the oldest guy is a guy who we sailed with many times, and he's 79. So that was oh, pretty cool, cool to see the difference in between the ages and how everyone worked together as a group. But most people that come sailing with us are either people who don't have a boat themselves or they may have a boat that is not ready for the ocean and they like to go sailing in the ocean to different places. So they usually come back with us maybe once a year, every second year, because they know they're not going to get, they're basically getting the sailing fix coming sailing with us. Right. And then we also have people who come, who are planning to do this on their own, maybe have a five-year plan of either having a boat or getting a boat to go long distance cruising and they want to test it out before they uh, before they basically take the big step to do it one do I right. like it and two gain a little bit of experience so that's pretty cool and then often we, we I'm I love to follow everyone after the trip and uh, stay in touch and a lot of people who sail with us have gotten their own boats and oh, wow. are currently out cruising and that's really cool because like Andy said in the beginning it's all about inspire people and if we can inspire them to take the step to go cruising on their own that's just really cool i think oh that's awesome it really is i mean you're doing two for one i mean one i'm guessing there's some people who it's like a bucket list to do some of the passages with you and i'd say bucket list is like you know transatlantic for sure then there's others who it's a bucket list and it's like a a stepping stone you know being in a comfortable environment with people like you who know and you know they're learning you know they're experiencing it in a semi-controlled environment as you said do you guys see a different i'm just curious like and maybe I'm totally off base, but there's the folks who want to do maybe shorter passages, like maybe those are like the week long 10 days. And then there's folks who want to do transatlantic. I see those as two very different types of beasts, kind of those different passages. Is that true? And do you see a different type of crew or different type of person signing up for the transatlantic versus just maybe uh, you know, a north to south run along the East Coast or something? Um, I actually think that it's kind of the same people who come sailing with us all the time. It's just depending, I think some people have more time on their hand and other people have less time. And the people who have more time can sign up for a longer trip. But I find that uh, we have the same kind of people on every trip. What do you think, Andy? Yeah, I would I would agree with that. I mean, th- to to kind of make it a little bit more big picture, the, the people that have the best experiences I would say and who are the easiest to work with are the ones regardless of their sailing experience they come with without any ego um, because every boat is different and every skipper has different ways of doing things and some ways are you know some things there are, there are capital right ways of doing things but other other things there's there's not one right way to do it but mm-hmm. where i was going with this is the the people that think they know everything but really don't they're the worst people to work with and they're the hardest because for example you know our crew they do they stand watch we're sailing 24 7 so you're on a four hours on eight hours off watch rotation and mia or myself is always awake at the changeover but if everything's going smoothly, we might have two crew um, basically sailing the boat while Mia and I are both asleep. And I can't, I'll never be able to get a good night's sleep unless I know the crew mm-hmm. outside is going to wake me up if they have any questions about anything. 
Yeah. Um, and and that's really important. You know, when when you have this dynamic on board the boat at sea, you got to work as a team. And part of that teamwork is making sure that if there's any doubt at all, that you wake up the skipper so that that I can come up and and you know solve a debate if two crew have different ideas about things, whatever. So the people with the least egos do the best. But I do want to share a story about one of my favorite crew that's ever sailed with us, one of the most interesting. Yeah. He was a guy who had new, recently retired. I think he was about 62 when he sailed with us. He was a rancher in Texas and I guess raised cattle or something. And he had this real slow southern drawl. And when you talk to him, you just you got this very stereotypical impression in your head of this kind of right. slow-moving southern Texas guy. And, and <laughs> when we met him, he, he had a plan to travel around the world by land and by sea. And he was not a sailor. And he called us up. He was one of the very few people that actually call before they book with us. We're very lucky in that we get people that just listen to the podcast for years and they just sign up. Yeah. But anyway, this guy, Mac, his name was Kevin McMahon, called himself Mac. He called us like six, maybe a year before the trip was going to happen and said, hey, I'm planning this trip and I've made certain rules for myself about this adventure. And one of my rules is that I have to cross an ocean by a sailboat. Otherwise, I can't say that I've gone around the world by land and sea unless I actually uh, sail cool. across an ocean. He's like, will you take me? And I said, absolutely. That sounds awesome. So he came up, he took like one or two sailing lessons just, you know, on a lake in Texas or something. And um, took, he walked out of his backyard in Texas, hitchhiked his way to the Amtrak station, took the train <laughs> to New York City, jumped on a cruise ship to go to Bermuda. And it was one of the few ships that would allow him to get off the ship in Bermuda because most go out and back again. He's got off the ship in Bermuda, met us in Bermuda, sailed all the way across to the Azores with us. Um, rejoined the boat, spent some time exploring the Azores on his own, rejoined the boat like 10 days later, sailed up to Scotland with us, wow. took the train down to France and all the way up to Stockholm, and then took the Trans-Siberian Railroad to Asia, took a, another cruise ship to Western Australia, took the train across the outback and all the way across Australia, and then Dude. booked a, booked passage <laughs> on a container ship from Sydney <laughs> back to Los Angeles where he got on another train and went back to Texas. So it was That's a hell of a trip that epic. he did. That is so yeah. epic. And I love it that he That's just like, said, you know what, this isn't going to count unless I sail across an ocean. That that was like, yeah, man, that's, yeah. that's great. Yeah, that's cool. So for in that example, right, so here's a guy who's kind of landlocked. He took a couple of sailing courses on a lake, and maybe there was like in 12-foot sunfish boats or something, right? And then he's going to jump on your boat <laughs> sailing across the Atlantic. So how do you position – or kind of what kind of duties do you assign a guy like that versus maybe somebody who's had their own boat for 10 years, you know, a different sort of level of sailor? How do you decide, you know, what, what that person should do? It's less to do with their experience because again, back to that ego thing, like I, Mac was great because he was a blank slate and he was a great, he was really smart and really learned quickly. So, you know, by the second trip, or by the middle of that first trip, I mean, he was really good at, at everything. You tell him something once and he'd, he'd remember it and, and know it. And then by the second leg, you know, all of a sudden he was the most experienced of the crew because he had just sailed 2,000 miles with us. So he kind of got promoted on the yeah. second leg. He was like in charge of four-deck work, which is kind of the most dangerous work on board going up forward at sea and doing spinnaker work and stuff. But he was great because he was a blank slate. And to answer your question, I don't assign roles based on experience. I basically mm. assign them based on based on the situation. It's very circumstantial. So, for example, if we have if we have a particularly rough day and somebody needs to go on the bow to do something, I'm going to pick the fittest crew member because they're the ones that I'm I think are least likely to fall overboard because they're going to be yeah. able to maintain their balance and and aware of their own surroundings and and stuff like that so it's really circumstance based um on the other hand you know mac was probably quicker to wake me up in the middle of the night because he was if we had a crossing yeah. situation with a ship for example that's really hard to judge in the middle of the night yeah and but that's the point i want i want to be woken up in those situations to make sure that it doesn't get to be too close of a call so yeah um, that's kind of how I, I never and we always pair people up on watches not based on uh, skill level but rather on personality because that's the yeah. most important thing you're in a small space for a, a long time just you and one other person you you better get along with each other and and the the simplest way we do it is we put we always put two people on watch 
and the two people who talk the most, they go together, and the two people who talk the least, <laughs> they go together. Because there's nothing worse than putting an introvert with an extrovert and having the extrovert right. talk the other guy's ear off for four hours. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you've learned that maybe the hard way and over time, you know, gotten good yourselves at like reading the people who are coming on your crew and then being able to pair up accordingly. You know, I'm sure that because that that all, I mean, as you know, will also help make or break an experience for somebody is being with people who they kind of jive with, you know? Exactly. I mean, I, I like to compare what we what we do is really, you know, crossing an ocean in a small sailboat is as close as an average person's going to get to space travel. And I really like that analogy. And it's the same thing. I just finished reading a book about Apollo 8. And it talked about, you know, the, the guys in that capsule, they had to get along with each other and they were teamed up a lot based on personalities. And, you know, people ask us right on our, on our frequently asked questions page on the website. The first one up there is, how do you know I'm going to get along with the other people? And the answer is you have mm. to. Yeah. <laughs> Don't have much choice. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's all good, man. Um, one thing too, you know, uh, and kind of switching gears more towards the passages and the routes you guys take, and you know, there's a sense of familiar, familiarity for you both in, you know, on the Atlantic. And I'm looking at on the really again your great website, 59-north.com, and we'll put a link to it for people to check out. Um, there's some awesome. There's a lot of variety there. There's some really cold stuff at the top of the of the world, and there's some stuff a little lower, a little warmer. You know, so. For you two, what's do you have a favorite passage or a favorite route that the both of you really love the most? Um, last summer we went up to Svalbard, which is uh, north of Norway. It, we went all the way up to 80 degrees north, and that was, of course, like a very special trip. Uh, but that take took a little bit of energy, so it's we're trying to balance the trips by doing more adventurous and new places with places that we feel familiar with. So after the summer up in Svalbard. It felt really good to go back to some place that we already knew, just to kind mm. of make it easy. So we're trying to balance it to like pick the best of two worlds: find new places that we're gonna like, and also go back to places that we really like. And the favorite, I think, is up Nova Scotia, Newfoundland. Is my favorites. I love being up uh, when it gets colder. I like this colder sailing. Right. I always think when I'm sitting back home, I always think I'm gonna like the Caribbean. But yeah. then when I get there, it's so damn hot that I can't even do anything. <laughs> so then I was like, yeah. what did I think? Like, yeah, it's beautiful here, but I can't do anything. So, yeah. and every time when we're like starting to sail north, I feel like I'm gaining energy by every degree it gets colder. And then I'm kind of getting into my comfort zone when it's like around 20 degrees Celsius. So that's kind of how, how I work. How about you? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the favorites, I, I, I would have said exactly what Mia said about the balance, but um, in the Azores is one of a one of a special destinations. That's one of those places where we've been there twice now by boat, and it's kind of one of those classic landfalls where I actually wrote an article about this, where it it almost doesn't as a, if you're a sailor, it almost doesn't count going to the Azores unless you've sailed there. Like you, that's one of those places uh, you have to earn it. Like yeah. there's a there's a bar in Horta called uh, Peter Cafe Sport, and it's a world famous sailor's watering hole. And like, yeah, you can fly there and you can charter a boat out of Horta and do a vacation there. But you, you would, you know, if you're if you're a true sailor, you wouldn't necessarily want to tell your friends that you did that because right. it's just like <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't count. Um, and but it's one of those, you know, it feels so much better to have spent 12 days at sea through the ups and downs. And, and then you get there and you're sleep deprived. And, but you're at the dock, you're safe, you can finally relax and you go up and you have a beer and you reminisce with all the other hundreds of boats that also experience the same thing you did. You get there, you get this community yeah. aspect at places like that, at these classic landfalls that you have to earn. Um, and that that's one of them for sure. Right. Yeah, that's awesome, man. And that's a neat thing about, I mean, there's a lot of different, I mean, there's parallels to that sense of community in many different sports in the ocean and a lot of different folks I have on, whether you're paddling or big wave surfing, there's like a, a community globally um, that for the most part, you can sit down and bump into somebody who's active in what you're doing and ha and find that familiarity with them. And I can imagine the same thing. And so with you guys going to, you know, similar, the same, not the same ports, but, you know, similar anchorages again, the ports, et cetera, do you have like little, a little, you know, network of friends and all kind of pockmarked around, you know, both edges of the Atlantic, like you could pull up to this anchorage or I'm sorry, that port and pop in and see somebody, you know, there and then go a hundred you know, 400 miles south and do the same somewhere else? 
Yeah, we we actually do. It's really cool. I mean, it's one of the upsides and the downsides of this lifestyle is we have so many close friends that we see once a year, if that. Yeah. Yeah. And in all, all over the place. I mean, we we came we sailed into Bermuda um, earlier this year, and it was one of the first trips where both boats were sailing together. And we sailed into Bermuda. Both boats were there, and just Bermuda is one of those crossroads in the Atlantic as well. You get a lot of boats that stop there on the way north from the Caribbean, heading back to like New England or the Chesapeake. But then you also get a lot of European boats that that call there on their way to the Azores and then on to Europe. So we. At once, there was like half a dozen boats in the harbor that we knew, and then there was a bunch of people, because we'd spent like eight years um, working on these different sailing events in Bermuda. We'd go there like once a year. So ashore, like in the in the bar at the St. George's Dinghy Club, we knew the bartenders there, and, and it was just really nice, a really comfortable feeling when you get into a new place and yeah. people know your name. It's, it's really cool. But I wanted to share, um, you mentioned a second ago the surfing stuff and, and big wave surfing, and I have an interesting story um, we did last year, our last trip of the season, we sailed from the south coast of Portugal out to Madeira and back again. Oh, and man. part of the reason I wanted to go to Madeira was I had just finished reading um, this book, uh, what was it called? Called Barbarian Days. Oh, the, yeah. The surfing awesome. memoir. It won the Pulitzer Prize. Yeah, one of my favorite books. Yeah. And um, I've, I'm not a surfer, but I can I really relate to that culture because um, yeah. there is a lot of similarities. But anyway... In that book, a large section of the book talks about this um, little surf village called Jardim du Mer that had like a really mm. awesome big wave that these guys had discovered. Yeah. And, That's right. And I was like, we were in Madeira only for like three days. And I said, Mia, it, this village was like on the opposite side of the island from where the boat was in the marina. But I was like, Mia, we got to go out there and just check it out. I, I read so much about this. I want to see it. So we rented a scooter and very quickly learned that like the road, Madeira is a hugely mountainous island. And there is a big highway that traverses it that you can get pretty quickly across the island. But the, uh, the highway is all, it's basically a series of bridges over these ravines and tunnels through the mountains at, <laughs> at like 65 miles an hour, which is oh, untenable on a scooter. So we had to take these back roads that like wind their way in the mountains. It was spectacular driving, but it took us like three hours to get to this village. But we made it there and we wandered around and got to kind of relive some of the stuff that he talked about in the book and it was just a, a really cool little mission for me to like say that i i sailed to madeira i got out to the surf spot even though i'm not a surfer i got to see it and uh i went back and reread that section of the book with that picture yeah. in my head which was really neat so completely yeah. unrelated story but it was a cool story and i remember that um kind of chapter that part of the book which is i think he almost got like killed out there like he went out on a huge day and there's a really hard it's like really hard to get back in and really struggled i think that was the spot out there yeah they they actually had to paddle down to like a neighboring village and yeah, you can yeah. see that neighboring village from from where we were and it's far man it's really? like holy smokes and there's no way like there's no roads that connect those two <laughs> villages it was it was pretty gnarly yeah. to envision that no, that's way cool. So I'm curious too. So kind of back to Mia and the cold weather stuff, you know, you have the Swedish blood and so you're super used to the cold and I absolutely get it. One of the neat things that I was, as again, I was just looking at all the cool content you guys have and there's this kind of special um, place that you've been, which is 80, 80 degrees North, which is that line. I mean, what's the significance of that? Is that kind of like the sort of top of the world or what, what is, what is it up there? Yeah, so it's a it's a, a place called Svalbard or Spitsbergen. Some people mm -hmm. may know one or the even name, and it's north of Norway. It's about six hundred miles right uh, from north uh, northern tip of Norway, north up. And uh, we have heard about it because a lot of our Norwegian and Scandinavian friends have been there or talked about it. And when we lived uh, in the U.S. back maybe like six seven years ago, we actually bought charts of the place because that was the place that we wanted to go to, and we were hoping to go there on our previous boat. But just never got, it just didn't really work out. And then we said, when we bought the ESP on RS-148, that that was like a mission. So we planned about three years prior to that to make it work and have a big wow. refit and plan the calendar to make it up there. And it's a beautiful place. It's uh, about 2,000 people living up there. And uh, it's snow, ice bears, walruses. Just a really, really amazing wow. place. The significance of, of 80 North, like Spitsbergen, because of... The warm water of the Gulf Stream, the, the, the whole reason the west coast of Norway is not frozen is because of this. the tail of the Gulf Stream winds its way up the Norwegian coast and keeps that part of the world 
relatively temperate. Uh-huh. And, yeah. the, and the very tail end of the Gulf Stream makes its way all the way up to the west coast of Spitsbergen. So it's ice-free in the summertime. In the wintertime, it freezes. Um, and it's, it's basically as far north as you can sail in open water, I mean, unless you have a, you know, an ice-reinforced boat. So to get up, we could have made it even farther north um, because the pack ice that, like the whole North Pole is just frozen ocean year-round. Yeah. Um, but the edge of that pack ice moves north and south depending on the currents and the wind and how right. bad the winter's been, this and that. So when we were up there, we had one of our goals was to try and sail up to the edge of the pack ice, but it was really far north. I um, mean, obviously the ice cap shrinking every year. Um, so we got up to 80 degrees north, uh, but the edge of the pack was up at like 82, which is another 120 miles even north of where we were. So, but 80 north is kind of it's a meaningless line. It's just a line on the on the chart, really. Right. But it is it is significant because it just feels like yeah. a big number. You're only 600 miles from the North Pole. Right. Um, it's above the landmass of Spitsbergen, so there's no land north of that. It's just frozen ocean all the way to the North Pole, and it, yeah. it's just one of those kind of milestones. And it was funny because we have electronic charts on the boat in addition to paper charts, and on the electronic charts we had, the chart just ended at 80 North. It was just gray, blank space <laughs> north of that. So that was kind of that was no kind of a cool feeling. Just literally sailed yeah. off the map. It's ice free up there, but it doesn't mean it's warm. It was like I think uh, the average temperature was about two degrees Celsius, which is about thirty-five degrees Fahrenheit. So it was yeah. even though it was summertime, we had the snow on the boat in uh, on June twelfth. We had a fresh layer that we woke up to, but uh, it was a lot of layers. So I didn't ever felt cold, but it was thanks to a lot of long underwear and down jackets. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's one thing. It's funny when I think about sailing and going on long voyages, which is kind of on my next kind of phase of life, but. I think of nothing but warmth and surfboards, you know, <laughs> and it's funny, like when I was looking at your guys' pictures and just putting myself in the shoes of you and in the crew you bring, it's like, there's a lot more prep. Well, I shouldn't say a lot more. There's a lot of special prep required to go in those areas where it's cold and, you know, you're going to have snow and everything. I mean, so how does that, I mean, how does that impact sort of packing for the, for your trips? I mean, if you're going to be in the Azores is one thing, but if you're going to be, you know, uh, Newfoundland or something is different. I mean, different is it different gear? I mean, uh, for the deck and for just you know the clothing and everything. I mean, how does that work for you guys packing and everything? Yeah, it's. I mean, being a, most people that like if if they say they're going to sail around the world, it's it's in the tropics. It's it's shorts and t-shirts yeah. for most of the way, and and you can do that, and it's great, and a lot of people do that, and. Uh, I, I'm just, I'm interested in, in higher latitudes as well. I want to do it all. Uh, but as far as packing and stuff, I mean, there were no, no special modifications we did to the boat because we weren't going into heavily iced in areas. There were some glacial ice that we had to avoid, but you know, the boat was outfitted as, as any well-found ocean going boat would be. The only difference is we added a heater, uh, which came in handy. We didn't use it all the time, but it really took the edge off when you came down below after a four-hour watch yeah. out in the cold. And it dried stuff out. That's the, the biggest challenge is keeping everything dry because everything gets damp because you get, you yeah. get, it's warm inside the boat, cold outside, so you get condensation on everything. Uh, and that was a constant challenge. But it's, it's basically it's packing like you're going on a ski trip. And imagine like mm-hmm. if you've ever gone skiing, you, you're sitting on the chairlift, and that's when you're the coldest because you're not moving. You're just sitting there. And that's yeah. what it's like. You're basically, when you're on watch for four hours, you're basically sitting on a chairlift for four hours and maybe steering the boat or letting the autopilot steer for a little. There's not a lot of movement to keep you warm. So it's, it's a bone-chilling cold by the end of your watch. But um, we, like Mia said, we, we never felt cold. We felt prepared. But we had to have, like, because of the wetness, you had to have, like, three or four different pair of gloves, you know. Yeah. And, and we found that you just, when you were handling lines or sails or something, you couldn't wear it. There was no pair of gloves that worked to allow you to have the dexterity to do what you needed to do. So you just had to take the gloves off temporarily and deal with it and then put gloves back on to warm up again. And like <laughs> we had special helming gloves. If you were driving the boat, we had these rubber gloves that the fishermen use up there that have like a synthetic sheepskin on the inside and they're rubber on the outside. So they're completely waterproof and they're great when you're driving because the wheel tended to be wet and stuff and it kept your hands dry. But then if you're just sitting outside, I wore basically just like ski gloves, but as soon as you start doing stuff with the ski gloves on, they got wet. So it was a constant struggle with that, but it wasn't really any different than, you know, layering up for, um, for like a ski trip. And then we had 
The only other difference was we had these survival suits on board. They're basically called Gumby suits. It's like a really yeah. thick neoprene kind of onesie that allows you, if, if the boat was going to sink, we'd all climb in our survival suits, and it basically allows you to be in the water for like six hours when the water's like yep. 35 degrees or something. And that's a worst-case scenario situation, but it could save your life because uh, if you go in the water with nothing on, you're, you're not going to oh, last yeah. real long. Yeah, yeah, dead on. So, you know, kind of switching gears a little bit. I mean, really what we're, we've been talking about is the two of you sailing around a good chunk of the world and warm and cold. And I'm sure you've been through some big seas and everything in between. There's a level of just knowledge and experience that you, you guys have, right? And I'd love to hear sort of how you both got started back as kids, introduced, being introduced into the ocean. And you have the, you know, on your website, it's a great story about the both of you and how Andy kind of got me into it. But I'd love to hear, I mean, maybe Andy, if you start, I mean, it sounds like you come from a maritime family. Your father was a master mariner in the Coast Guard. It sounds like he's still active with you guys out at sea and everything. But talk about your, your growing up and being introduced to sailing in the ocean and how that kind of then folded into meeting Mia and kind of getting her into the obsessed as well <laughs> yeah she didn't really have a choice but uh, she, she stuck <laughs> with it but no um to, to be clear my dad my dad was he has a it's called a master mariner license a captain's license he never was worked in the coast guard or anything he's a he's a businessman oh, that's where i get the him and his brother run a, a couple of restaurants back in pennsylvania that my grandfather started so that's where i get the entrepreneurial side of things from cool. my grandfather and my cool. dad and my uncle my dad's been a sailor since he's in his 20s but he's done a few professional gigs here and there doing some boat deliveries and stuff. But um, he, just to be clear, he, he wasn't doing that as a, as gotcha. a living. But um, no, I mean, my, my mom and dad started sailing when they got married. And they were both in their mid-20s. And they kind of just always had boats when I was growing up. And we, I grew up in Pennsylvania um, on a horse farm. So we were also far from the ocean where I grew up. But it was... We grew up water skiing on a river nearby the house. So it was always around the water in that sense. But then in the summertime, we'd go down to the Chesapeake, which was about a two and a half hour drive, and spend a week or weekends and stuff just sailing on the Chesapeake um, with my, my sister and my mom and dad. And then the, the biggest thing for us when I was growing up as a kid, my mom and dad took us out of school when I was nine and my sister was seven. I would have been in fourth grade and my sister second. And we took the boat from the Chesapeake down the east coast of the U.S. over to the Bahamas, spent several months in the Bahamas, and then came back again. And that was my fourth grade. We were homeschooled on the boat. That was fourth grade for me. So that was oh, like cool. the first really big experience of living on and with the ocean. That you know, We were living on the boat for nine months, and that, that was life. My dad and I in the Bahamas would go out spearfishing and go collecting conch, and that's you know we'd clean it on the beach and eat it for dinner on the boat, and... It was just a really cool lifestyle that, you know, they exposed us to that at a very young age. And, and I'm 100% positive that experience is why I am where I am today yeah. and have such a close relationship with being around the water. Um, but more than that, I think, because my sister didn't, you know, she had the same experience, but she still enjoys sailing with us recreationally. But um, she's a teacher now. And I think bigger picture philosophical thing that we got from our parents that I like to say is my, my mom was the philosopher. My dad was the practical guy. And I even have my mom, my mom passed away in 2012, but I have her handwriting tattooed on my wrist and it says, hold fast to your dreams. And mm, that's what she'd written awesome. to me in a note that she gave to me right before I left on the backpacking trip where I met Mia, which I'll come back to in a second. But what I'm, where I'm going with this is my mom said, Basically, her philosophy was do what you love and the money will follow. And my dad's then was on the practical side, we don't care what you do, but whatever you do, try to be the best at it and then you'll always have something to do. If you're the best at whatever you do, there will probably be a niche for you to fill. Yeah. So those two pieces of advice are really powerful and I think it's the reason that I pursued the sailing thing and, and why my sister pursued her teaching career. She's a reading specialist. And um, she's like truly found her calling. She's created a reading program where the kids get to read to animals on this on this little farm that the school has that she works at. And it's like it's like made for her. It's perfect for her. And I think the bigger sort of takeaway isn't why I got hooked to the ocean, but more that I was able to 
identify and pursue my passion. And so was my sister using those two pieces of advice. And it just happened to be sailing for me and it yeah. happened to be teaching for her. And, um, but that ident identifying that in the first place was, was really a powerful thing. And, and that, yeah. that notion that you can follow your passion and be successful if you work hard for it. Yep. Um, and, 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 you know, when I graduated college, then I went a more practical side of things. I went to Annapolis because I always loved that town. Got a job as a deckhand on a schooner, and uh, also was working in their. It was a small family-run business, working in their business office a little bit, and that was probably the first time I realized that I could actually make a career out of sailing. I always loved it, but I didn't have a, a clarity of like, okay, I know what I'm going to do now, and that was the first experience. Um, it was called the Schooner Woodwind. In fact, if you've seen the movie Wedding Crashers, there's a short sailing scene in that movie. Yeah, the woodwind. The woodwind was used for that movie, so it's a, huh. it's a pretty well-known boat. But um, yeah, and I'll, I'll let Mia tell her story. But yeah, we um, we met, and she had never sailed a day in her life before we met. So I'll I'll, I'll give it over to her. <laughs> yeah, so I have a little bit of a different story. But I grew up in this countryside of Sweden, uh, very happily in my family. But then the first time I ever stepped foot on a sailboat was in in New Zealand, when I met Dandy, he invited me and my friend who I was traveling with, and uh, that was the first time, and I was 21 at the time, so I kind of came to sailing later in life. <clears throat> but I've always been, I think sailing, ironically what we do, sailing is a big part of it, but it's also, it's a bigger picture than that. I always liked being active, I always liked to travel, I liked to live a kind of a simple lifestyle growing up, and I think that's Sailing was just a different outlet for that than it is. Uh, uh, so it's not just so much about the sailing. It's all about the traveling and what we do. Yeah. I think that is more of what... Yeah, I get you. And then to that, Mia, as well. I mean, there's a... You know, when you, when you grow up around the water, on the water as a kid, you just... And you maintain that over time into adulthood. You, you know, you see the ocean. You have a lot of time to develop your comfortability or your level of comfortability in the water and big water, small water, whatever that might be. And sometimes adults who come into it a little bit later in the game, as you mentioned, sometimes it's challenging because you're not used to the ocean. You didn't grow up getting beat around. And so how is it for you? Like as you know, in your young twenties, which, you know, you think you're, you know, bulletproof and, you know, you're gonna live forever yeah. still even then. But I mean, how was it? Like you're getting on boats now and then at some point you hit some bigger seas. Like yeah, how was your kind of evolution of comfort in the ocean? I think it was a pretty steep learning curve, but me and Andy pretty quickly when we, I first visited him in Annapolis and uh, we stayed on his dad's boat and we very quickly realized that we wanted to have our own boat. And uh, when we bought our tours, it was a, uh, Allied Seabreeze from 1966, a beautiful little classic. So we restored her, and the dream quickly became to sail her all the way to Sweden. So oh, cool. we, we worked up to that, and uh, we went on a lot of deliveries. And I never feel like, I mean, I, the funny thing is, I just got my yacht master over the winter, and before that, I had taken no specific training. I have taken no sailing classes. But to me, it's more about, I mean, I learned from Andy, who is been i realized afterwards he's a fantastic uh, coach uh, yeah. but uh, i think just living on it and being on a boat is the best way to to mm -hmm. get into it and the more sailing we did we constantly extended the comfort zone first we did a couple just one overnight and then we did a few more overnights and then eventually we crossed the atlantic and all of a sudden it was just i felt super comfortable with it but i have to say in the beginning i got pretty seasick the first couple of days but not on wood now <laughs> i haven't been seasick in like five years and i think that truly comes with a little bit of experience i'm not getting as anxious as i did the first couple of years so that's right. a big relief now that i don't think i've been seasick now for like i said five years oh yeah no that's awesome i mean just sometimes the anticipation of like maybe be becoming seasick is almost just as bad as being seasick because it's so distracting you know <laughs> yeah you can see people yeah, sitting so, then yeah no, oh. i would say you can see people sitting something thinking am i seasick maybe i'm seasick oh, yeah. i'm not sure if i'm seasick <laughs> i think i'm seasick and then it's just that downward spiral so oh, definitely no. getting less anxious is helping I know, I know. And I think we all have horror stories of being sick and I have a couple of good ones too. I mean, it's just, yeah, what's, what's classic about it. And this is just a side, <laughs> side topic, but it's funny. 
I know some pretty big badass guys who don't do a lot of stuff on the ocean, but that gone out with them in the water and on land, there's a lot of bravado and like, you know, that's cool. That's just how they, they operate. They're good dudes, but they're just big kind of burly guys. But it's so classic, the humbling experience of being seasick for somebody because basically you're, it, it's, it, it's the greatest equalizer there is where it doesn't matter if you're the biggest, baddest dude or girl in the world, you're, you're curled up in the fetal position <laughs> on a bunk, you know, and then it's so humbling afterwards. It's a, it's a pretty fun, funny experience to have and see sometimes. <laughs> it is. And it's, it's funny. We kind of, we compare what we do to like going on a mountaineering expedition sort of thing. It's like that level of gnarliness. It can be anyway. And, but yeah. I, I tend to think that ocean sailing on one level is, is, is even harder than a serious mountaineering expedition because at least there you can pitch your tent and stop. Like right. the mountain's not moving. Like you're not, you're never stopping. You never can get off the roller coaster when you're at sea on a boat. Even if you can physically stop the boat and heave to and ride out some bad weather or whatever, it, it's still constantly in motion. And yeah. you just gotta, you just gotta become one with that. Or, and, and if you don't, if you fight it, you're just going to be in for a long fight because there's oh. no getting off the roller coaster. And <laughs> it's, um, but I will say that the longer the trip, the better it is for seasickness, meaning like everybody will get over it. Every, everybody right. adapts eventually. And sometimes it takes longer than others. We've had guys mm -hmm. in their bunks for three solid days yeah. And one guy in particular, thankfully, it was a it was an eight day passage, so he got to enjoy the second half of it, um, and really enjoyed it because he had this you know, he had this horrible experience in the beginning, <laughs> oh, man. and then and then realized how good it could be, and uh, really enjoyed it at the end. So uh, it, it, you know, I I tend to tell people there's a a great movie, a great quote from the movie uh, Vanilla Sky, where the one actor comes in and says, "Without the bitter baby, the sweet ain't as sweet." Yeah, hundred percent true. <laughs> I know it's super true. It's super true. So you know, there's another really cool aspect that I'm curious about. Kind of back to where we started, like not so much philosophical, but almost maybe more spiritual. You know, and this is a fun theme that I love to have. You know, and just chat with people who maybe they're endurance athletes who paddle a paddleboard between Hawaiian Islands for 24 hours, or maybe it's somebody who free dives to 300 feet or hunts fish and everything in between or sails across the Atlantic. There's this like connection we all have that you recognize not, not every minute of every day you're on the water, but every now and then there's something special that happens and it could be a sunset, an animal, who knows what, but for you guys, kind of two questions in one, one is like your own, I don't know, this, the, this, the spiritual call it that there's a lot of different ways to phrase it. Just the connection that you feel being out on the ocean you know, is you're out there so much, you're seeing such amazing things, but I, it never gets old for one. So just relate that. What's that like for you guys? What does that mean to you as another really neat aspect of this life that you've built for yourselves? Yeah, great question. I, I love talking about this stuff as well. Um, my mom was a very, a deeply spiritual person in the universal sense, like not, she was not religious at all, but was very spiritual in, yeah, in the natural universal sense of, of the word. And I really, I, I've kind of inherited that from her, I guess you could say. And, and I enjoy trying to have, see how I can frame this. There's, there's one specific story I want to tell. But in general, when you get to travel by sailboat, it's, you're going at such a slow pace. It, it, I tend to frame it as it's not a slow pace. It's like a human pace. It, it's, you know, we weren't meant to travel across an ocean in six hours in an airplane. Like, right. if, you know, people don't think time travel is a thing. Well, it is a thing. Get on a transatlantic airplane and it's a freaking time travel. Like, it, it is. <laughs> it's, it's as close as we're ever going to get anyway, especially when you realize it takes three weeks to get across that same body of water at a pace that's more natural. Um, even this Greta, who just did the transatlantic to go to the climate summit. I mean, it took them two weeks. Yeah. They were on a freaking race. Yeah, board. I know. So that's awesome. It, it just it, it makes it on a scale where you can actually pay attention. And in a combination with the speed and the disconnected nature of being out there um you get to pay attention to i think signs in nature that are around us all the time but that nobody's paying attention to um yeah, so you know we talk about you know offshore you can literally see stars down all the way down to the horizon you, you've never seen a night sky like you've seen it in the middle of atlantic on on a clear mm -hmm. night um we've had several occasions where we've mistaken a bright 
star for a ship's light because it was that low on the horizon. It was just rising wow. or just setting. And it's hard to explain what that's like to people. And my other favorite natural experience offshore, you get bioluminescence in the water, which is like the plankton oh, that glows yeah. in the dark and is disturbed. So cool. But the coolest part about it is you get a really dark night with no moon. You got a lot of stars out. And then you'll usually hear them before you see them, but they'll, dolphins will come up in the middle of the night and you'll hear them spouting or something near the boat and they tend to hang out with the boat for a while. But when you have an area of particularly bright phosphorescence, the dolphins streak through the water like torpedoes. They have this comet trail that goes for like 30 feet behind them as they're swimming underwater. And it is, every time you see it, you don't see it very often, but when you do see it, it is just the most amazing thing you've ever seen in your life just that is that yeah. am i am i hallucinating or am i right, really right. seeing that it is unreal um and then on the more really more spiritual side of things um when we were going up to spitzbergen last year my mom always read omens into things like signs in nature and stuff that um cool. that meant something to her and she was particularly curious and interested in in like bird feathers, especially hawks and eagles and sort of the more majestic birds of prey. And there was a little island that we were anchored next to right before we left to go on that final jump up to Spitsburg and that last 600 miles offshore. And Mia was on the beach and found some eagle, golden eagle feathers on the beach and thought that I would appreciate that. So she brought them back to me. I tied them up and hung them at the nav station. I thought, like, that's a really good omen that our last stop here, I felt we found these eagle feathers. So I hung them at the nav station as sort of a a good luck token and they saw us safely to the arctic and back out again and they'd stayed on the boat the whole summer after that and then going across the atlantic in january the, the feathers were still there we're now in a new season in a new part of the world and uh, a safer part of the world and i had gained a ton of confidence by doing that trip up north and we were at sea on my mom's birthday which was which would have been february 1st and i was on watch in the middle of the night and we always like to set the watches up so that Mia or myself can have an hour or two at night when everybody else is asleep. So we just get to enjoy that solitude and that, you know, that's the most spiritual time of day out there. And yeah. I, that's the reason I do it. So we set the watches up so we can get that time. But I was, you know, reminiscing, reflecting on what my mom meant to me and all this stuff on her birthday. And I thought it would be appropriate. Like I felt like those eagle feathers had served their purpose. I was like, you know what? I'm going to cast these off into the ocean because this is, this feels like the right thing to do to acknowledge my mom's birthday and say, you know, thanks for serving your purpose and off you go. So I did that. And of course that like, it got me super emotional. I spent the next hour just crying my eyes out, laying down yeah. while the autopilot drove the boat, watching the stars. And just, that was a really, really special moment for me. And it got even more special because the next day was kind of an overcast. It was still her birthday, but it was after the sun came up and it was kind of overcast, rainy. And I was on watch again alone, not because it, everybody was asleep, because it was pouring down rain and people were hiding. And we had this big minke whale come up next to the boat. And it kind of hung out with us for a while and would dive down under the boat and come up on the other side and dive down again and come up on the other side. And I didn't say anything to anybody for a while. I just wanted to enjoy the whale's presence on my own. And then I said, all right, you guys got to come up and see this. And as soon as everybody came up, the whale, they got a glimpse of it, but then he kind of went away. And then everyone would come back, could, would go back down below again, stay out of the rain. And then 20 minutes later, the whale would come back. And I just, I had the strongest <laughs> sense that that whale was like saying hi to me from my yeah. mom, like acknowledging yeah. that thing. I just had this super powerful sense that that whale was, that was for me and me alone. And yeah. that was such a special experience. And especially because it was like midway through the trip, we'd been at sea for probably 10 days by then. And we were really into the rhythm and really you know, I like to say, once you get that far into a trip, it could go on forever. You just into that rhythm and it's, it's, it's yeah. just, you are at one with being at sea. And I don't know, that was, that was a special moment. Yeah. I love that. And what's cool too is, is when you let yourself acknowledge those things, you know, and you can choose to share an interaction or a moment that you have on the water with an animal or whatever it is with others or not, it might just be for you. And what I, I like, I didn't used to do that. I used to like maybe have some sense of something when I was underwater, on the water, or whatever, and just kind of hold to myself because you're not sure, you know, maybe that was when I was younger. But now when you let yourself acknowledge that what you just witnessed or what you just went through and what it meant to you, like you just said, that's, I really strongly feel that was, you know, this whale was, you know, basically on behalf of my mother just interacting with me. And that's, 
that's awesome, you know, and, and it's so cool when you let yourself actually acknowledge those things that that's that is a possibility and it's a reality, you know, and there's so many uh, epic stories, especially with the marine mammals, you know, and the seabirds too, like of just people I've had on the podcast when times are tough or they're down or it's an emotional moment and something like that happens exactly right then and there, you know, it's, it's, it's epic. And now, now what about for the, well, actually let's ask me, me, I'd love to hear your perspective too, being out at sea and having these types of moments for yourself. Yeah, I'm trying to prompt Mia to tell the, the story. We were on Arcturus, the first ever passage offshore when it w was really scary and you had the dolphins come up next to the boat. Do you want to tell that story? Yeah, we were, uh, so me and Andy, when we first had got on Arcturus, we got the good idea to take it all the way down to Florida, the two of us, but and down the ICW. But we very quickly got sick of the motoring down the ICW, so we were going to do a three-day hop going offshore. And the first night was pretty scary because there was a lot of lightning and we didn't have an autopilot. So we had to hand steer and it was, got really tired. But then uh, when the lightning stopped, uh, Andy went down below to sleep and the dolphins came up and they swam with me for probably two hours. And no it way. truly felt like they were, you know, comforting me. And every yeah. time, every time when I'm out sailing and starting to feel anxious, there's dolphins coming. And it always feels like huh. they're coming to say like, hey there, there's no problem. We're out here. We're taking care of you. We're keeping an eye yeah. on you. So that always makes you your anxiousness go away really quickly. So that's Gosh. always, I think, magical. But to me, yeah. uh, one thing that I truly got to appreciate this year on the transatlantic was uh, uh, the stars. And uh, it was really neat because two or three of the crew who were with us were really into stars. And they got so excited because they got to see so many constellations they had never seen before. And uh, just having someone with you who knows it's nice to look at the stars, but it's even nicer when you can actually connect them and oh, see wow. what they're like. So every, every night then, like Andy said, we have uh, usually trying to get a few hours by ourselves out at night. So me and Andy were laying in the cockpit, just watching the stars and seeing new constellations coming up over the horizon and stuff. And I, that was really magical. Mm. And another, another cool thing I think that people don't even think about when you go offshore is that a few hours after you leave harbor, you lose phone connection and internet and on the transatlantic just being without internet and phones in your pockets for over 20 days oh yeah that is spiritual i think in its own nowadays because <laughs> when you're having conversations with people you can't just pick up your phone and fact check stuff it's more like you can actually it's not often sitting down with a someone in a conversation for a couple hours just kind of talking about stuff and right. looking at the waves. I mean, at home, you can go out and lay on the grass and look at stars for four hours at night, but I don't do that. I do that offshore, so I think that's... Right. There's a great... Um, there's a great... It's a, a snowboarding movie, actually, but there's... Uh, I think it's called The Fourth Phase, and I forget the guy's name now. I should know it off the top of my head, but anyway, he bought this catamaran sailboat, and his idea was to follow the water cycle from the west coast of the U.S. across the Pacific to Japan and Russia and do some skiing and stuff over there. And there's a very short part of this film that shows them sailing across the Pacific and stopping and surfing at some places and stuff. But there's a one line in there where the guy says about what Mia said with the disconnectivity. He said, I could, I think, I forget how it goes, but it's something to the effect that like, I could disconnect myself when I'm ashore as well. I'm yeah. just not disciplined enough. Yeah. And that's why he loved being at sea because it was forced abstinence from phones. And that's yeah. one reason I love it too because yeah, it, nobody's disciplined enough to put your phone down for 20 days. Are you kidding me? Nobody's going to do that. Yeah. But you're forced yeah. to when you go offshore and and you it takes a couple days to get used to that. And once you're into it, you're like you never want to pick up your phone again until the day you make landfall and then it all the floodgates open. <laughs> oh man, 100%. Absolutely. And I could see too, it just kind of popped in my mind. I mean, the how neat it is for you guys to see i guess in some cases experiencing all of this with new people every time and, and maybe even seeing some transformations within people you know out at sea learning you know failing and growing and just you going through all of it but also those, those special times like you learn from your the, the crew you have too so how neat it is for you guys to get this this worldly set of experiences perspectives from a lot of different people and sharing in these I mean, what you guys are doing is special enough just the two of you. And then you have somebody coming out who, you know, will look, maybe we'll never go sail that again, but it's a, it's something that they'll remember forever. You guys were able to experience that with them. I mean, what a neat thing, another neat byproduct of what you're doing out there. 
I mean, that's a hundred percent true. I say that all the time. It's we, we get to, you know, it's, it would be easy to take it for granted, but we're not allowed to take it for granted because we're getting to see the, the joy in everybody else's eyes when they get to see that stuff for the first time. Yeah. So you, you, you're yeah. reminded every time how special it is that we're doing this. And you're also reminded by the fact that it is, you know, even the shorter trips we do, it is bucket list items for people and they're, they're yeah. taking a big chunk of their time to come and do it. And, and it really makes us appreciate it. And it gives us a mission. I don't think, you know, we would, we need something to do, you know, there's a, the, the model in the, like my dad's generation to go sailing for the most part was you worked a career and you retired and bought a boat and went sailing and just went cruising. But that model doesn't exist as much for us anymore in our generation for a number of reasons. But it's also, there's not a lot of young people and we're not that young anymore, but even, you know, 20, 30 somethings out sailing. And we just need a, we need a mission for it. And that's, that's been our mission to share it with other people. And then that's made it fulfilling for us much more than just kind of cruising around and exploring. Yep. I think we'd get pretty hmm. bored bored with that pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. That's super awesome. So then what's next, you guys? You got you got two boats. You're you're in a kind of a, a nice lull right now where you're able to relax after going really hard for what eight eight eight, nine months or so. So looking forward. I mean, I know you start your season again in 2020 and I've looked at the trips you have lined up. And just a lot of epic things, but like big, any big, big plans beyond that, either trips or goals for yourselves that you guys are looking at. Yeah, we, um, next year, 2020 is, is sort of familiar territory for us. That was like Mia said, that's a, a, a year where we're going back to places we've been to before and a chance to sort of reset before we do something super ambitious. Um, and then 2021, which we haven't published yet, but which will get published in October, um, we're going to take the big boat back to, or not back to Greenland for the first time. Um, and it's kind of cool cause we've been to Iceland now a couple times by plane and, and once by boat. We've got some friends that have boats there. So Iceland feels like home now and it's close to Greenland. So we're going to do a big, the big goal of 2021 is going to be go to Iceland and Greenland. Um, and then after that, we do have some really big plans on the horizon, but I can't talk about those just yet. Um, so next time you have cool. me on, you'll, I'll, I'll, I'll reveal that, but it, it, it we nice. haven't fully committed to it yet, but it's, there's a very big plans on the horizon, on the distant horizon. But yeah. I mean, Rad. it's on the, on the other side, the reason we got two boats, you know, from the beginning, this was Mia and my thing and it's been awesome, but just like we want to inspire people to come sailing with us and share that. I also Getting a second boat is not a necessarily smart financial decision. There's not a lot of upside. This is not a we don't. This isn't a tech business that's like scalable here. You know, yeah, every right. <laughs> it's just more hassle and more maintenance and more expenses. And you know, we'll be lucky to to make the second boat break even in the big scheme of things. But one of my goals and where I put some value on it, besides just the financial side of it, is I want to be able to say, hey, we're looking for a full time skipper and a full time mate for the other boat. Because if I was 25 and somebody said, hey, here's a job yeah. where you can sail across oceans for a living, I would have right. killed to do that. And we want to develop people that can share the same mindset that we have across the board. And there's, there isn't a lot of opportunity for young people to get jobs on sailboats that are crossing oceans. It's, there's yeah. not a lot that yeah. do it in the first place. And we're trying to create a network of people that can that we can share this with on on our side of it and to that end we actually have next weekend 14 of our friends and people that have been helping out in the business uh for the last couple of years and it will be in the future they're all coming to the farm in sweden for a big like kind of kickoff here now that we have two boats and get everybody on the same page and inspire everybody to to kind of oh, work together cool. on this we wanted to make it more than just mia and i because we feel like we have more to share and want to kind of provide opportunities. So that, that's the next big thing really is expanding this beyond just the two of us. Yeah, that's awesome. I think that's really cool. Um, it's like, you know, you could just focus on growing the business for the business sake, but what you're really talking about is growing it for the sake of others and providing opportunities for somebody who's out there, a younger person who, and, and who might not ever have that opportunity. And I mean, there's a lot, I just think that's, that's really, really, really cool, man. So, and both me, me as well. I mean, that's, that's awesome. So, um, I admire you guys for that. Yeah, thanks. Uh, sometimes I wish I hadn't taken the plunge when I'm really stressed out about stuff, but uh, I'm pretty optimistic today. So you caught me on a good day. Now it's gonna be it's gonna be really cool. It, it's the right yeah. feels it's it feels like the right thing to do. Yep, 
Good, good deal. Well, hey, I, I really want to uh, say thank you to you guys for for taking your time and sharing all your stories and and also just for doing what you're doing, you know, and getting so much content out there. And I, I will put in the show notes for folks listening. It's fifty nine dash north dot com, and I'll put a bunch of links. And it's just. I found a couple. I found the podcast yesterday. I, I don't know why I didn't even know about it before, and listened to a few episodes in my drive to work. And it's just cool. I mean, it's you have great people. You speak really well. You guys share so much. Your blog. I mean, anybody listening who's interested, whether you sail or not, doesn't matter. I mean, just the stories you guys tell and the experiences, and for folks who are more technical, the gear and the uh, and the different techniques and everything, it's all there. So, I mean, you guys, thank you for sharing all that with the world. Yeah, thanks, man. Thanks for having us on. Thank yeah, you. my pleasure. All right, you guys. Hey, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, we'll be hopefully, hopefully talking to you soon. All right. Yeah. Thanks, Josh. Good luck with all your stuff. Thank you so much, you guys. Take care. Hey, do. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for listening uh, to another podcast episode. Can't do it without you. And uh, so thrilled to have you here supporting uh, myself and the podcast and all the guests uh, continually. Always appreciate a positive um, rating on your uh, your podcast app, whether it be you know Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, you name it. Just helps helps grow the podcast and uh, spread awareness. So thanks for that. And then any uh, social media mentions, always super appreciative. And uh, if you know somebody who you think would be great to have on the podcast to share the, about their ocean life please hit me up. I'd love to chat with them. Or if you think you'd like to, let me know. Uh, email is josh at thisoceanlife.tv. All right. Thanks, guys.